This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Faskin's emerging tech and venture capital practice is comprised of 80-plus dedicated legal professionals across the Canadian market. We're deeply involved in the startup ecosystem and have worked closely with founders from startup to scale to exit. Our team is a leading Canadian law firm for VC financings and tech M&A and act for many of the best-in-class startup and scale-up innovation-based companies and entrepreneurs in Canada. Given this experience, we understand market trends and can assist in guiding your company forward as you scale. We take a holistic and strategic approach to helping our clients achieve their goals and provide the full suite of services including corporate, corporate finance, M&A, commercial, IP, data and compliance, employment, tax and beyond. We are excited to help the next generation of unicorns. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind the scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Arsham Gahramani. Arsham is the co-founder and co-CEO of Ribbon. Ribbon is a professional social platform centered around verified achievements and ownership. They empower managers, leaders, and HR teams to effortlessly and publicly celebrate their team's work 
by sending lasting, verifiable awards and credentials. In this episode, we discuss his background in machine learning and data during his PhD and work at companies like Amazon, how social networks should think about verification, the hack LinkedIn used to kickstart their network, and how Ribbon is looking to shake up the professional social space. Please enjoy my conversation with Arsham Ga-Ramani. I'd love to start with your time in uh, university. I saw you went to Imperial and King's College in London. You're focused on biomedical engineering and bioinformatics, which uh, takes a bit over my head. But like, why why did you choose to take those subjects? And and what are those subjects if you kind of broke it down in more of a, a simple term? Yeah, sure. I can break it down a bit. So just kind of a bit of context about like what I was interested in. I think at the time when I went to uni, um, that, that was around the time when I guess the buzzword, the buzzword big data was coming along. So there was a lot of hype about, you know, like, how do we store data? What is big data? I wasn't in industry or anything at that time. Like I was, I was just thinking about going to university, especially for my undergrad. Um, and so I, that, that whole world seemed interesting of like, you know, what does the future look like with a lot more data? This wasn't even in like the AI or machine learning days, right? So, so like people were just thinking about what happens as like data grows, how do we store it and stuff. Um, and then I was looking at like what are hard areas of science. Um, I, I've always been what I'd call like a scientist or a bit of a science nerd, even from, from when I was a kid. And, and so I, I was looking at like what, what are areas that involve a lot of data and that have a have a lot of low, low hanging fruit. And so I was looking at like physics, for example, it seems like there's not as much low hanging fruit in that area because a lot of the greatest like physicists, um, they were, you know, alive, let's say like 50 or 60 years ago, but, but now there's less low hanging fruit maybe in that area relative to like, if you look at biology, there's just so much unknown. Like we, we, we know so little about the way that our bodies function and, and work. Um, so I was thinking kind of opportunistically, like what are areas that I can go into that involve huge amounts of data and that have lo- lots of low hanging fruit. And yeah, that was, that was kind of how I started looking at bioengineering and bioinformatics. They're both really heavily, I guess, numerical, like data heavy areas, but, uh, with huge numbers of un- unanswered questions, just because of the, the way that biology and medicine is. Um, so, so that whole area kind of appealed to me because it seemed like you, you, you're kind of mixing this like really numerical area with what seems more like an art, like, like a lot of biology is very descriptive, but we actually don't know what's the underlying mechanism of X, Y, or Z. Obviously data is a huge topic now with machine learning and, and AI. How do you look at data from, you know, like, let's say you're exploring a new area and there's really no kind of standard to that data. Data. How do you go about that process? I'm very curious of like, obviously it's followed you throughout your like entire career, like that obsession with data, but how do you create data for a field that maybe doesn't already have that? And also what are some things that like you've learned about data that maybe the average person might not be aware of? One of the things that people really underestimate, I think about data, whether it's large data or small data is like 
you should just spend a lot of time looking at that data, I think. And, and it, it sounds kind of backwards, but you know, whether you're looking at like a social graph, so, you know, what we're building at Ribbon, or if you're looking at large, like biological data, it, it helps to just spend a lot of time kind of manually trying to understand, like, what are the weird patterns here? Uh, one example I'll give you in, in like a lot of biological experiments, you'll, you'll see patterns that like come from the data that are actually introduced as like errors by humans. Right. So, so it might be that if you always do your experiments on like a Friday afternoon, just after you have your coffee, you'll, you'll like, you'll end up doing that experiment in a certain way. Um, and so like a lot of data is very very influenced by humans and, and just the way that we do things. And I think not enough people spend the, the time actually manually going through the data. A little bit about, so you went on to get your PhD. I, I'm curious about like the, like, you know, just the amount of effort that goes into that, just being, you know, singularly focused on like a mission for a long time, like that problem solving. Do you see a lot of correlation to, or if you do, do you see a correlation to like, your studies doing your PhD and now being a founder or no? So the biggest commonality is just persistence. So when you're doing a PhD, uh, the end, especially when you start, the, the end of a PhD feels like years and years away because it is, and it just feels like something that you may never actually get to. And I, I think that's actually part of the appeal as well for a lot of people is that, yeah, you're working on something new and novel. That's cool. Um, at the end of it, you will be an expert in this very narrow domain. Um, but if you actually want to get to the, the end point, it involves a lot of persistence and a, like a really long, long-term view. Right. So like in, in a lot of PhDs, like the experiments and the things that you do in, in the first couple of years end up kind of being meaningless. Like that, that's when you're doing a lot of the learning, uh, you might not really be asking the right questions, any of that. And. Honestly, that that's kind of the same with a startup too. Uh, like the the earlier you are, and the earlier a prototype is, probably the the more irrelevant that that stuff that you're building actually is. And then as I get you get as you get closer to product market fit, you start asking the right questions, like developing in, in the right areas. So I think a lot of that persistence I, I learned from from the PhD of just keep going, even if what you're working on right now is not necessarily the right thing to be working on like in, in the long term. You have really interesting work experience too with machine learning at QCO, Ezra, Amazon. Uh, we don't need to chat about each one individually, but you know, it, do one of those kind of pop out to you of like a really interesting experience? And what was that transition like from kind of like academic you know, obviously very data-driven, but into kind of more of like a machine learning environment. Was there kind of a transition period there? Yeah, there was definitely a transition period where, uh, and, and that, I remember at the time, it, the, what I was really seeking was, okay, I've spent kind of four or five years now working on a PhD, just working in academia, where, where things are very open-ended. The end goal is a paper. Now I just want to build stuff. Like let, let's start building stuff at a much shorter iteration time. And that was super exciting. Just kind of diving into that world. Um, I was lucky as well that I took essentially one of the algorithms that, that I developed during my PhD and then that was applied in my first role at QCO. Um, I guess one, one kind of comment, I, I feel a bit, I feel lucky 
that out of those three experiences, I ended up getting to experience, I guess, a, a wide range of organizations of like how, how an organization could be run and, and how they're influenced. Right. So just, just some examples, QCO, they, are and were a really small company. They never raised any VC money, completely bootstrapped. Um, I, I joined as the second employee. And, and so there were certain factors that, that kind of influenced the way they were run. Then, then, then when I went to Ezra, um, so, so when I first joined, they raised around five, 5 million from, from different VCs. I think up to date, they've raised around 25 million. So th they were run in a very, very different way, right? They were, they, they had a lot of firepower in terms of capital and that influenced uh, really the, the whole culture of the company that meant that there was like a large marketing budget and all that kind of stuff. And then thirdly, Amazon, right? Totally different culture. So lots of resources, but also lots of politics there as well. Um, took a, a long time to ship things, but then when they would ship things, it would ship to, let's say like a hundred million customers overnight. So I, I think kind of getting to experience all of those different cultures and, and why they're influenced in that way, you know, kind of being a public company versus a private one, like VC back, I would recommend that to anyone or just get as wide an experience as possible. I think is that that helped understand uh, why certain companies take the way they do. With those three very unique, different experiences, different stages, different budgets, all the different internal dynamics. How did that influence yourself as like the founder of Ribbon? Like, was there a certain way you wanted to take the business from day one, just based off of your experience? I'm most interested of like, yes, companies and startups change over time, but just that kind of initial idea behind things. Like, it, did you have a vision for the company based off those experiences? Yeah, I think a couple of things that influenced us. I know it's true also from my co-founder, Dave. Uh, we, we've both managed teams in other organizations before, um, and we manage like smaller teams, larger teams. And so what, one thing starting ribbon that, you know, we, we weren't looking for was we, we weren't just looking to manage people for the sake of managing. And we're actually really both content with like managing smaller teams wherever we can. Right. So, um, I think that's something that's, that has influenced us is like, we had that experience in the past, uh, and we know that a smaller team can just move faster. So, uh, one of the, one of the conscious decisions we, we are still making right now is hire as slowly as possible, really until the like last minute that you really, really need someone like in, in the organization, just don't hire until that final minute. Um, I'd say that's one thing. And then, and then I, I think for me personally, just like experiencing those different organizations has helped understand customers a bit better maybe because I, I get where they're coming from if they're like a smaller org or a larger org. I think if I hadn't worked in, in one of those extremes, maybe I wouldn't understand as, as well, like, you know, what, what actually makes them tick. I think that's a nice segue into Ribbon. So I'm always very curious of how like the initial idea starts, how the initial co-founders meet. Is there an interesting story there? Uh, and would love to know, you know, hey, you were kind of just thinking about this problem. Was it a firsthand problem? I'd love to learn a bit more about that foundational story. Yeah, so I'll set the scene a bit and kind of tell you a bit about on my co-founder as well. 
So, so my co-founder Dave Vu and I, we, we were both working at Ezra. Uh, he, he was the head of people and talent there and I was the head of machine learning. And so through, through our roles, we would, we would interact kind of here and there. So if I was hiring someone for my team, I, I would interact a lot with Dave. Um, and, and he was responsible for dry, for really driving the culture at Ezra as well. Um, he, he was a big positive force in, in that organization. Um, and one of the things we would jam on really frequently was just, just the state of hiring and, and how much of a stranglehold LinkedIn has on that whole industry. So, you know, if you're a recruiting team, you essentially are forced to pay LinkedIn some amount of money these days, because that's, that is just the main way that you get access to talent. So if, if you're a recruiter and you have a LinkedIn account, that is essentially your ticket into this world. If LinkedIn were to ban you, you essentially can't, can't do your job now, right? So there's this huge amount of pressure on like keeping up your LinkedIn, um, all on that side. And, and we, we started seeing some really odd things at Ezra when, when we were recruiting. So one of the interesting things we saw were these, were these kind of fraudsters or gangs of fraudsters that, that would apply to roles, uh, either under different names or the same name, and they might have been bots, they might have been real people, but they're essentially trying to fraud their way into access to the company. And then once they had access, do something nefarious. Uh, so we had one example of a North Korean gang that, that would apply under different pictures, different names each time. If they got to the interview stage, uh, they would then read out some, some kind of script about their experience. The only way that we actually called that was because we, we saw the reflection of someone's script in their glasses one time and, and, uh, we, we actually took a picture, kind of zoomed in, saw, saw a little bit of the script of what they were saying. Um, we, we've experienced that actually a bit at Ribbon as well, but kind of, we, we saw all, all these issues happening of, um, just fake applications, fake profiles and obviously me coming from a machine learning background, uh, I was fairly early into the, the, the implications of what's happening in the AI world. So, so just to set, set the scene a bit more, this was around 2018. Uh, so long, long before all of the large language model stuff that's happened long, long before chat GPT, all that kind of stuff. Um, but one of the things that was obvious even then is that all this AI technology, especially on the generative side of things, all, all that's going to get better. Right. And so what happens as it does get better. And one of the implications that I think was, was already clear in 2018 was that we're eventually going to get to the point where half the people on LinkedIn are going to be bots, right? So you, you like end up putting out some kind of job ad, uh, half of the applicants are bots or they, or, or, or they found some way to game the system. Uh, and then what happens to your recruiting process when that happens, or even what happens to interactions on LinkedIn when that happens, right? So you're like commenting on another post. You have no idea if, if, if the actual author of that post is real, are they fake? And, and so th this was an idea that Dave and I would jam on a lot. We, we, it was clear that LinkedIn kind of ha has a disadvantage there just because a large part of their business model is ads and selling people, right. As, as a recruitment tool. And so if, if you one day have to admit that, let's say like half of your users are actually fake or some kind of 
some some significant portion of your users are fake, uh, you end up taking a hit on the amount that you can actually charge, either for the ads or for the recruiting tool. And yeah, so there's kind of pot of swirling ideas between me and Dave. Um, we thought about kind of you know, what's the issue here, and the, the core issue that, that that was clear to us was that there is a there is an issue with verification. So when when you see a profile on LinkedIn, you don't really have a high level of trust about whether it's real or not. And and so it was clear to us that someone somewhere soon is going to build a new platform with, with just a high level of trust. So. You'll, you'll be able to log into this platform, see a profile and have all the evidence that you want there, that this is actually a real profile. And so, so that's, that's really the concept of ribbon is what, what we're building is a new professional network, uh, that has a high level of trust. And the way that we're achieving that is by, is by essentially giving users, uh, lots of ways to add evidence to their profile that they are who they say they are. Right. So one of the ways that we've done this is by adding ribbon awards. These are awards that are issued from companies and they verify certain achievements that, 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 that you've done. Um, we also recently launched video. So this is a way to add a video into your profile. Uh, that's a way to add a bit more context about who you are. And then we're also working on AI models that will look at the video and see if it's real or not. Um, and then finally, we're also working on adding social verification. So this is a way that you could get like a past colleague or someone to verify some of your work and then have their name almost as an endorsement next to your experience. And yeah, so, so I guess that's ribbon in a nutshell. It's very interesting that that topic of verification, because I think it's just a hot topic lately. You know, I think Twitter is just swarming with bots. I find all the time. What do you find is a good way? Is there like, a few different you mentioned a few different buckets there. I'd love to maybe break those down. Like, I guess one part of verification is like tech tools. Like, is someone taking like a selfie or uploading like their ID or something? You mentioned like the social aspects, so like the users are making sure that like these are real accounts. And then on the other side, maybe it's things that you're doing at Ribbon, like so it's like AI or other. How do you think about those different buckets? Is there other things that like I'm missing there that you like believe kind of make up verification as a whole? I think you wrote to a really good point there that one, there are a lot of different buckets and I, I think I've actually gone on a bit of a journey since we started looking at, at this space. So if you asked me maybe a year and a half ago, I would have said, yeah, verification is almost like a black and white thing. And we, what we want to build is a platform that essentially gives you a hundred percent trust. But, um, I think I was wrong with, with that initial viewpoint and, and really I, what I think today is that there's a lot of different ways to add evidence and trust to, to something that you see. So, so if, if you have a profile, I think you'll, you'll never have a hundred percent trust that this is a real person unless they're actually in front of you. Uh, so what we're working on is two, two sides really. One is how many different ways and methods of evidence can we add to ribbon? And then how do we, how do we make that really easy for the end user to add? And I think the, the more of these you add, there's kind of like exponential value that you actually create there. Once you have some kind of threshold of evidence, then, then, then I think the users start to interact a bit differently because they, they have enough evidence knowing, yep, all these other people are real. I'm actually interacting with real other valuable people with, with interesting opinions. 
And so they, it, you end up with very different behavior to, to a platform where you know that some, some, there's some, some, some proportion of people are, are not real. Right. And I, I think that that's kind of what, what you see on LinkedIn. You see these like engagement posts, um, you see this clickbait kind of stuff. I think a lot of that is driven from the fact that you're not sure how many of the people you're actually interacting with are, are just selling or actually bots or, you know, not actually interested in what you have to say. And, and so I think you, you see very different behavior as a result of that. What do you think about timing? So, you know, talk about LinkedIn, you know, started quite a while ago now, and it's this big dominant force, but you know, you're seeing a lot of innovation in social platforms on the non kind of workplace side. There seems to be a new one every year and maybe people will jump on it on it and some some of them explode like TikTok, for example. I guess, you know, what do you think makes the the workplace side of things? Maybe I, I would say it almost seems harder. And why do you think it is a bit harder? And why do you think timing is good now with LinkedIn? Is it because of that rise of like fake users? The platform's so big now that, you know, like p things can branch off from it. I guess, like, what do you think about timing there? Yeah, on the timing side. So it, it's interesting that there isn't really a single other, that there's not a single other competitor to LinkedIn out there. So we're, we're one of the few that are trying in, in this space. We're starting to get traction. If you look at other people in this space, no one's really tried. I think one of the factors, to be really honest, is that when LinkedIn started, they they used a bunch of illegal tactics to get people right. So there there was this, there was this long a lot, lot there was a long-standing court case where a bunch of people took LinkedIn to court because they were farming their contacts list, and that was one of the ways that LinkedIn ended up bootstrapping their network. Um, that's not really possible for a for a newcomer anymore. You can't really use the, those kinds of tactics today. Uh, so I think that's that's one of the factors. Um, I think the other factor is that a lot of other companies are just scared. So so they they see how entrenched that network is. Uh, they see how large of a product LinkedIn is. So I think it, it's much larger than. Than, than, for example, Twitter as a product. You, you have the sales side of things, you have the recruitment side. It's also a social network. It's also a directory. The, there is a lot to build there on, on that side. So I think that also scares people away uh, because you, you just need to execute a lot of product to be able to capture all, all, all of those things. But I, I also think all, all of those aspects kind, kind of work towards us. Um, so, the, the, the way that LinkedIn is and kind of how large of a product is has just attracted a lot of bots. And there are bots that use each of those aspects of their product, whether it's the social side or, or, or on the recruitment side. Um, that's a huge advantage for us because we, we, can, we can essentially build in things from the start that will, will be resistant to that. How do you think about, you know, you, you mentioned LinkedIn with some tactics to like kickstart the network. How do you think about networks? I guess that crosses over into growth a little bit. Are you looking at, you know, hey, we need to launch this in a specific team or a specific company? Uh, is it like more geographical based? Is it industry based? Like, have you found anything that's kind of cl clicking there? Or I, I guess, yeah, just really focused on 
growth, like what markets and networks you should be tapping into to kind of initially start this thing? So our entire network thesis, I guess, is that we have to shoot for density. And so we, we, we've experimented with a lot of different the customer types or user types. Um, and, and in each case, the only places where we saw any kind of success is where we have high density of lots of people who actually want to interact with each other. And so ha have a reason to come back to the app um, and then also ha have a reason to chat with each other on there. And so, but I, I think that there's a lot of different ways that you can build that density. Uh, one of the ways it, is to go after companies because everyone within the company is just much more likely to interact with each other. They have a reason to, to interact. They have something in common. Um, that, that, that's one example. Another place where we've actually found a lot of success is universities. So these are people who are kind of early in their career, likely to look for a job soon or, or, or are looking, are looking for ways to stand out from, from the crowd as well. Um, and, and again, they have something in common. So, so they have a need to, to actually look for each other, to, to interact with each other. Um, and so that, that's. That's what we're looking to scale at the moment as well. Kind of other companies, other universities, other smaller networks could be even organizations of people that have a, have a strong need to, to interact with each other. How do you think about that balance of like in real life as well as virtual? Do you really think about it that way? Or are you just looking to build the best virtual product? But do you also look at it like, hey, this could create more collisions or in real life moments? I'd love to talk a little bit more about how you kind of view that that dynamic if you view it that way i've honestly never really viewed it in that way as like real life versus not not real life but i i'd say part of our philosophy is ultimately that we want actual people to connect with each other um and and so you know we, we want to actually drive re real connections not just kind of bots that are talking to each other um whether that means we ultimately kind of end up with more people to actually meeting up in real life or getting jobs together, uh, I'm I'm not sure, but but yeah, I've never really thought about it in in that split before. When you look at you know you're talking about awards and and you know people can can gain those and gain recognition. How do you think about those dynamics from like a social setting? Like, what does that do to the network? How do you make sure you have like the the right re rewards? Like, how do can people give them? I, I guess just very like diving more into like that social side of things and people interacting with each other. How do you really determine that? Do you kind of just let users do their own thing and you kind of look at patterns or, or the data, or do you really go, okay, well, we need to have this type of award because it's going to drive this behavior. So one of the things that became clear from launching ribbon awards is that, that there isn't enough recognition out there. So one of the repeated things that we heard from, from, from a lot of our customers was that now that we have this tool, we've actually started recognizing things, achievements that were just going under the radar. And, and so that's actually improved our culture, right? I, I think there's an interesting kind of social thing to talk about there of like the fact that we need a tool like this actually to, to, to even just remind us that, yeah, as an organization, you're actually achieving lots of cool stuff. Don't let, let your employees go, go unnoticed. Uh, I think there's something interesting there. Things that we weren't expecting. Uh, one, 
was that we, we were hoping to come up with almost like a system for recognition. So like here, here are all the categories of, of awards and recognition that you can give out uh, and then use those. And we, each time, each time we found a new customer, we, we would have to expand that category because they, they had new ideas about what, what to recognize new ideas for awards. And then we eventually reached a point where, where we realized this is, this is becoming silly. This is not something we can just expand forever. Um, and so we need to create a, a more flexible system. And so I think one of the learnings was that each organization just, just recognizes things in their own way. Uh, some organizations might, might want to recognize each and everything that happens. And then there are others which will only send out recognition even once a year, right? So. They, they only want to recognize the most rare and large achievements. And we're not, it's not really our responsibility or, or I guess our place to say what, what is recognizable and what isn't. Um, and, and that was a, that was a really early learning is that there's not much control we have over that. Each of these orgs will just recognize people in, in the way they want to. And maybe in kind of a similar thread there, but from like a product standpoint, a user experience. How do you really balance, you know, I would almost view it two different ways. I don't know if you would view this the same, but like there's kind of like the team dynamic and the company using it and the users engaging with each other. But then there's also that solo piece to it, like the onboarding, the user experience from a solo perspective. How do you kind of manage those two different perspectives when building the product, if you do view it that way, or you focus on one more than the other? This is another journey that I guess we've gone through a lot. So we, we used to focus a lot on the team onboarding because we were thinking, yeah, we can bring in one leader of a team. They, they will then bring in all of their colleagues. Right. And, and so we, we were focused a lot of the product experience on, on that aspect, but what we actually realized is it, it, it's often easier to go out and individually get a few members of a team. And then that kind of consensus, having the network there, right? So, so like starting to build the density then actually brings in all the other members almost out of FOMO. So, so they, they start to think, you know, why am I not also on this platform? And so I, I think the ultimate lesson that for us is that we should just focus on, on the individual experience. So the, the end user who we're actually trying to improve their, their experience is the individual. Um, and I think if you really, really focus on them, they'll, they'll end up telling other people about it. They'll also bring the rest of that team. Uh, it's not to say that, that, that we're not focused on teams at all, but I, I just think so much of the experience is at an individual level that from a product point of view, we, we have to focus our efforts there. I think it segues nicely into like, you know, like Slack, you know, it made product-led growth, like a popular concept. How do you look at that product-led growth? And, you know, a user joins Ribbon, maybe they're the only person at their company. How do you keep that person engaged? How do you get them to be kind of like a main driver within the organization? I'd love just to chat a little bit more about the product-led growth and, you know, maybe kind of your strategies there. I think that that space is really interesting. I think things these days are very blurred and I'm not sure exactly where we stand on that, right? Like we, we do some marketing-led growth. We do some product-led growth. What, what I know is really important is as soon as a user onboards onto a product like ours, they have to see the value you know, within like 20 seconds. And so it, it's something that we've really focused on from like the landing page to the actual product itself is you, you have to be able to see immediate value. And uh, some 
other kind of proofs that you're, you're actually about to connect with others. And uh, all the iterations of our product where we didn't have that, we would lose people almost immediately. Uh, once we started focusing on that and kind of really, really early value, uh, those users were way more likely to tell other people about it, way more likely to, to interact on the app, way more likely to fill out their profile, all, all that kind of stuff. So I, I think we, we underestimated the uh, like time urgency aspect of that as well, is that you, you really only have, for the average user, less than 30 seconds to capture their attention and also give them a reason for, that, for them to come back in, in, in the future. And that involves also going through all the onboarding, showing them what's at the end of it, and then showing them some other reason to come back. From a data perspective, what kind of data or metrics are you tracking? What's important to you? You know, is it like daily active users, time spent on the app? Is it, you know, how engaged they are, how many other users they add? I guess, what metrics are important to you currently and what metrics you think actually drive true value versus maybe, you know, it's kind of like a nice to have. It's like, oh, well, we have, you know, X number of users using it a month, but does that really give us a true picture of what we need to know? Yeah, this actually at the heart of this question, I think is a lot of the issues we see with social media today as well. And, and so this is something that we've put a lot of thought into, especially recently. So I think one of the issues, if, if you look at like Instagram or LinkedIn, all, all these other platforms, um, especially on the, on the ad sides, side of things, they're essentially selling either clicks or views. Um, and so they end up really optimizing for views and clicks, right? Uh, and, and it, they should really on, only be doing that on the advertising side of the business, but they end up doing that all across because that's, that's really the revenue driver. And so like we, we are looking at traditional metrics, like, like daily active users, uh, the amount of time spent in the app, but another area we've spent a, a lot of time really thinking about and measuring is well, what's the quality amount of time that they're actually spending, right? So like how, how much of the time did they spend on the app and actually got value out of that? For example, looking at, at another profile. Um, and ended up connecting with another person. How much of the time were they spending curating their profile and then, then ended up sharing that with others? Uh, how much of the time did they spend recording their video intro and then, and then watching other people's video intros? Um, and then, so, so I think what's unique to us as well, because we, we have these different layers of verification, we can also segment, for example, daily active users by how many of these daily active users also have a video that, that that's being actively watched by, by others on, on the platform, right? So we, we can actually vouch for them that they're a real user, not, not just a bot that has somehow managed to log into ribbon and then interacting with, with these other profiles. I think we'll, we'll start to see a lot more of this in the industry of not just focusing on daily active users, even though that's like easiest to understand all that kind of stuff. I think that there'll be a lot more focus on kind of what's actually the quality of engagement and how many of these are real people that are actually interacting on a long-term basis with, with others. What do you think about the medium of how users 
use Ribbon. So like you mentioned, adding video, you know, if you look at other social platforms as well, like, you know, there's a lot of like text or posting or doing newsletters on them. You know, video is becoming more popular with a younger population. Is it f- uploading photos? Do you think medium is really important of like how people are connecting or interacting? Are you like using more video because maybe younger demographics more into that and also easier for verification? Do you think about it that way with like the different mediums which people can engage with? Yeah, I think the biggest difference to me is just the information density and like the info within that medium. So there's a lot to say for like a resume or a CV, like you can put a lot of information into that, but there's certain things it's really hard to get across in that, right? So like, what, what's your energy? Are you a really enthusiastic person or, or are you not? Uh, but then if you have a five second video on your profile, you, you can immediately see that. But then it's really hard to get into a video. What are your technical skills and, and you know, what's your really super deep experience? That's something that you can get in a resume. And, and so I, I, the way I see it is if we allow users to add all these mediums in, in whatever mix they want, I think that's, that's the ultimate kind of goal for us is that you're free to add all the evidence that you want, um, all of your experience. And when you show that to other people, it's really verifiable and, and they, they have trust in that. Uh, so yeah, that, I guess that's, that's the way I think about medium. How do you think about experience, right? Like if you, if you look at LinkedIn or something like that, people have their job titles. Some people might put a few responsibilities or some people's bios are sometimes a little bit ambiguous and, and a bit interesting. Um, how do you think about like presenting experience? Like obviously some roles, you know, maybe if you're a developer, you can obviously link like your portfolio or your designer, you can do the same. Other roles might be a bit harder. How do you think about showcasing experience? Do you think it's more about okay, I worked at this place. This is my bit of my personality. These are some of my skills. Or do you think about experience differently? No, I think you're exactly right. I, I, I find LinkedIn experience very interesting, actually. So just to kind of dive into that a bit. Um, like the average profile that you, you see on LinkedIn is usually on one of two extremes. Either they have nothing written un, under their experience because they, uh, you know, them, either that's because they haven't achieved much or they, they've achieved so much that there's almost no, no value actually adding anything on their LinkedIn because you're already getting so much inbound. Uh, there's just no need to advertise yourself out there. Right. Um, and, and, and so I think one of the things that Ribbon addresses is if companies are actively sending you awards for things that you, you've actually achieved, or if other people are verifying, as an example, experience projects that you worked on together, you can fill in a lot of that stuff almost for free. So there's not much work that you actually have to do on your side. Um, it, it's just added to your profile. If you don't want to display it, you can also take that off as well. Um, I, I, I think that that's where LinkedIn fails for a lot of people at the moment is that you just see this list of roles, but you don't really get a lot of context for like what was achieved, who was that achieved with? Was that a small team or a large team? When was it achieved? Um, all of that stuff, I think, is really hard to determine right now, whether you're looking at a CV or, or a resume or, or LinkedIn or some other job site. I would definitely view it that way. Like, if I'm looking at someone's LinkedIn profile, I'm almost, it's almost like a digital resume nowadays. And 
if you look at like people's skills that are endorsed, like Microsoft Word or something like that, like it just doesn't give you a good picture. And I find often I'm sending someone a profile that I think knows them and I ask like, what's this person like? Or, you know, you kind of get that social. So you're kind of almost building that function into it where like, okay, yes, there's the experience, but also the the social aspect or verifying within the community that you're probably doing in texting or or a phone call or other dynamic, but now like it's just kind of built into Ribbon as well. One of the learnings recently for us is that there are, I guess, two, two aspects to experience, right? One is what did you actually achieve? And then who was that achieved with? And the, the who was that achieved with is essentially, that is the social network. And so if you can somehow map out all achievements and who it was achieved with, What's the point in doing a reference check now if you have all that evidence on on the app on Ribbon? And uh, so you know that, that's essentially what we're trying to build out is how do we turn that like experience graph also into a social graph, and then give you a clean way of looking at that as well. I'd love to jump into the quick fire round, and it might be an interesting question just based off all your studies and getting a PhD. And I see all those books in the background, but. What's your favorite book? And if it's hard to pick a favorite, maybe just something you're currently reading or read recently that was really interesting. Good, but tough question. Um, probably my favorite book is no Norwegian Wood by Haruki, Haruki Murakami. Hard, hard to pronounce for me. Um, but yeah, I like the way a lot of his characters are absurd uh, and they're, they're not very realistic characters, but I think it kind of helps it helps escape the real world a bit, just, just kind of learning and diving into this absurd character. But yeah, I have to admit, I haven't done as much reading in, in recent times as I would love to. What are you excited about in the next year personally, as well as professionally? So one, one of the things that's exciting me right now, just, just looking at the startup world in general, is it really feels like technology in the true sense of the word is back. So there's, a lot of startups that, that are getting funded, uh, that are either working on re really hard problems like hard tech and hardware, or they're looking to challenge huge incumbents, like what we're trying to do. And so it feels like people are starting to believe again in actual technology. And, and I think that that's a nice contrast to, to all the years where a lot of what was getting funded was like Uber for X or some other kind of three, three-sided marketplace. Uh, so I think that's a really cool development in the, um, a lot of harder, harder tech problems are getting funded. Uh, and I'm hoping on the other side of that, we'll see just, just a lot of progress for society, hopefully. How do you deal with, with hard times? You know, some guests do physical activity or meditation or whatever it may be. Do you have any specific things that help you get through those difficult times? I guess a couple of things. One is just, just having a partner, having a co-founder, having lots of people around you who are there to support you during the hard times. Um, and then I'd say the other thing, honestly, having a dog. Sometimes, sometimes I look at my dog, if I'm really anxious or worried or stressed, I'll just look at my dog and think, there's not much to be worried about here. We all have food. Uh, we all go on walk. Like you're not worried. I shouldn't be worried. And, uh, there's something, there's something very, uh, very calming about having a dog. I, I agree with that. My dog brings me a lot of calmness and joy. 
Um, I'd love to open up the mic to you uh, if you want to chat about where where can people find Ribbon, uh, where can people learn more, uh, or anything else you want to talk about. And obviously, everything will be hyperlinked in, in, in the description there so everyone can get to it easily. We would love to host anyone on Ribbon who is looking for a more trusted and more verifiable profile. Uh, you can find everything that you need at ribbon.cool, C-O-O-L. Um, we're always looking for feedback. Uh, we've had hundreds of new videos just, just in the last week. Uh, and if you're looking for a place to connect with other people with a, with a high level of trust, hopefully we're that for you. Awesome. Well, it's been a great conversation. Appreciate all the insights and the deep dive into kind of social networks there. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.